When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dominic Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss another attack on the Kirsch Bridge, more drones fired at Russia, and the service GP Now that offers an online telemedical service for people affected by the war in Ukraine. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 14th of August, one year and 171 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by Rob Hicken and Dr Gognia of GP Now, an online service offering free access to volunteer medical professionals for anyone in need of assistance as a result of the war in Ukraine. I started by running through the latest news from Ukraine and beyond. Firstly, Russia claimed on Saturday, so let's go back over the weekend, Russia claimed on Saturday to have brought down 20 Ukrainian drones targeting Crimea. They said 14 were shot down and six brought down by electronic warfare jamming the signals. Online reports said explosions were heard in the Novizhny area, that's in the northwest of Crimea on the coast. However, later smoke was seen coming from the Kirsch Bridge on the other side of the peninsula, which links Crimea, so the, you know, the east of Crimea, to Russia. Although Sergei Aksyonov, who's the Russian-installed governor of Crimea, said two drones had been shot down at the bridge and there was no damage. However, online images that you'll find, including on our YouTube channel, can have a Telegraph YouTube channel, you'll see a bit of film there, would suggest that Aksyon, Mr. Aksyonov's comments were not accurate. An advisor to Moscow's governor claimed that the billows of smoke that, that we can all see from these images were a cover created by rescue services. OK, now, if so, they're not providing an awful lot of cover. Uh, Ukraine clearly knows where the bridge is because it keeps firing missiles at it. And it's not like the bridge has called for smoke anyway, so it can manoeuvre into a better fire position. But I do. I wonder why would emergency services need cover anyway if there'd been no damage? Anyway, 
Russia's MOD, Russia's Ministry of Defence, said that Ukraine had tried to strike the bridge using S-200 anti-aircraft rockets. And if that's correct, the this attack is thought to be the first time the bridge has been targeted in daytime, at least by rockets. Not sure about by maritime drones, but I think it is. That's probably accurate. So the attack, or clever camouflage operation, however you want to describe it, again halted traffic on the bridge, a scenario which um, these they do not go unnoticed in Russia. They, they fill up the social media channels. So it does have that, that wider effect of bringing the war home to Russians. Now let's move a little bit to the northwest. Overnight Sunday, Monday... A Russian missile strike on Odessa wounded at least three people in a supermarket that was absolutely wiped out, according to Ukrainian officials. The region's governor said air defences had destroyed 15 drones and eight caliber cruise missiles, but falling debris had caused fires to break out. So earlier keeper, uh, who's the governor, he said debris damaged the dormitory of one of the educational institutions in the city and residential areas, and you'll see the uh, the images of that supermarket that's, that's completely wiped out by, by fire. He said the blast wave knocked out windows in several buildings, damaged cars parked nearby, fires broke out at three facilities. Ukraine's armed forces in the south, the southern command there, posted a video and photographs of firefighters battling that blaze at the supermarket. I mean, it's widely reported but we've we at the telegraph have not been able to independently verify those images but it does look does look fairly accurate i think but you can have a look online now odessa you'll remember has been repeatedly hit by russian attacks basically since moscow began going after the grain terminals in um, you know as a policy after withdrawing from the black sea export deal now elsewhere on the front ukrainian general staff says their forces conducted offensive operations in the Berdyansk and Melitopol directions. So these are the two axes in the southern Zaporizhia region. They're both both these axes trying to push through to the Sea of Azov. So Ukrainian general staff saying these efforts achieved partial success near Robotina. That's the town we've been talking about recently. It's on the western of those two axes, about 13 k's south of Orokhiv. But about 50, let's go 50 k's northeast now, just out, just inside Donetsk Oblast, this is on the easternmost of these uh, these two axes of advance. Footage from Saturday, supported actually by a number of reports from um, Russian online sources, said Moscow's forces had begun withdrawing from Urizhena, which is just to the east of Staromayorsk. That's the town retaken by Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. So this area, we're about 100k southwest of Bakhmut. So this is you know, still down in the south but over towards the east of these three of these axes of advance. There's footage online I've seen of Russian forces which have been geotagged, geolocated into the area. Footage shows them being hit by cluster munitions as they withdraw to the south of Urizhena, although some Russian sources said yesterday that their forces still occupy the southern part of the town. Fighting is ongoing and the area is contested. Now, responding, Kiev doesn't often respond directly to ongoing um, sort of engagements, but Kiev said it has yet to capture the whole of the town of Urizhena, despite reports that Russian soldiers had abandoned their positions. Deputy Defence Minister Hanna Malia said that hostilities were still ongoing, still taking place. OK, now let's go north. Let's go inside Russia to the Belgorod region. Uh, and Russia claims to have shot down two drones, they say, were launched from Ukraine. Russian MOD said in a statement, 
quote at about 12.15 Moscow time and 12.45 Moscow time. So that's about three hours ago from now. Attempts by the Kyiv regime to carry out terrorist attacks against facilities on the territory of the Russian Federation were foiled. So here we are again. This is the Russian existential droney hokey-cokey, whereby Ukrainian drone attacks are acts of terrorism, whilst Russian drone attacks are acts of self-defence, I guess, force on an unwilling and peace-loving Moscow by the evil NATO and client regime in Kyiv. Same same types of drones, two completely different identities. I think I'm going to start calling them Schrodinger's drones. Uh, anyway, no casualties or damage reported, and the alleged attack comes after Russia claimed to have shot down four drones over its territory yesterday, three of which were in the Belgorod region. Belgorod, have we... Uh, so the, this area, so the drones today are thought to have come down near the village of uh, Pushkanoya. This is just outside, just to the west of Belgorod. This is about 60 k's north of, of Kharkiv. Uh, now, on the last military bit, just worth noting, something you've been tracking for the last couple of weeks, actually, but um, so today's UK Defence Intelligence report is saying that over the last week, there's been an uptick in the small-scale combat along the banks of the lower reaches of the Dnipro River. So we're in the Hezon region now, just near Hezon City. Ukrainian forces have worked to raid or, or, or set up small bridgeheads at new locations on the Russian-held East Bank. Now, you may remember this reporting first came out a few days ago. It was first, They were first described as, as raids, now starting to look like something bigger, especially if there's a permanent presence on the, on the, the East Bank, the Russian-held bank. Uh, in which case it, it it isn't a raid. You know, a raid is triangly described as a bit of a smash and grab. You, know, you charge in somewhere and try and grab either information or you destroy key infrastructure like a radar site or airfield or something, or you kill and capture troops and then you get out of there. A raid does not tend to, or you know, doctrinally does not hold ground. You don't go and do something and stay there. That is a that is, I don't know, a bridgehead, an assault, a lodgement, a, an advance. So we're not entirely sure what this thing is that's happening down in the Dnipro region. There's These operations seem to be in addition to the expanding bridgehead the Ukrainians maintain near the ruined Antonivsky Bridge. They've been there since June this year. And some of these operations are thought to be taking advantage of a, a local Russian force rotation. It always takes a little while for a new unit to properly dial itself into the local situation, geography and, and so on when it when it takes over a new position. So it looks like Ukraine taking advantage of that to push in this area and seemingly hold hold the ground. There is still a lot of skirmishing going on around all those small islands in the Dnipro estuary. So it is it is ongoing and news is is unclear uh, as ever trying to get uh, information out from, from the country is very, very difficult. But we are just going to keep our eye on that. Russian commanders, of course, face, face a real dilemma here, whether to, to strengthen that area or to keep their troops in the area of the, what they would think are the areas of Ukraine's main counteroffensive, which is further to the east. So this might, be, this might all be some huge diversionary tactic to try and draw Russian forces away, or it could be an effort to, to, to take ground in the far southwest with the potential for trying to expand out of there but it is very boggy very marshy there's a lot of there's a massive river to start off with then there's a lot of inlets so it's tricky to get heavy stuff across at the moment it's a 
it's a kind of light infantry battle it's uh, it's a it's a marine battle it's it's n- not a lot of stuff mortars calling in artillery that kind of thing but not much nothing much heavier at the moment now a couple of things on the diplomatic front before we sp- speak to our guests firstly dozens of russian diplomats have been expelled from Mon- moldova after claims that spy equipment had been installed on the embassy roof a spokesman told russia's tass the state-owned news agency the spokesman said 45 embassy staff members have departed together with their family members in total about 70 people everything went normally moldovan officials provided the necessary assistance all sounds very nice comes after media reports that 28 antennas mounted on the russian embassy in chisinau the capital of moldova and a nearby building were being used for spying and then finally a number of key Ukrainian political figures are putting pressure on Germany to supply long-range Taurus cruise missiles. You've got the finance minister today in Kiev, and Mihailo uh, Podolyak, who's the advisor, one of the advisors to President Zelensky. He's been speaking to journalists. He says that Germany seems wary of providing weapons that could hit Russian territory, but he said that, that Taurus cruise missiles would only be used for de-escalation. These things have a range of about 500 k's, about 300 miles, launched by fighter jets, that kind of thing. So Mr. Podolyak said on social media, long-range missiles for Ukraine now mean a sharp reduction in Russia's combat capabilities. This is the active destruction of Russia's reserves and resources on the far outskirts. I think it means the outskirts of the, of the sort of contact battle. This is the destruction of rear logistics, warehouses, transportation, fuel. It is the acceleration of Ukrainian offensive operations. It's about saving the lives of Ukrainian soldiers, minimising losses. Now, we think Germany has about 600 Taurus missiles, about 150 of them ready to go right now. That's according to German media. Spain and South Korea also operate the missile. And uh, it's reported that the German government is speaking to the to MBDA, the missile manufacturer, about the delivery of, of Taurus to Ukraine. Reuters over the weekend quoted a spokesman for the German government as saying, Germany is focusing on heavy artillery, armoured vehicles and air defence systems. There is no new information on the Taurus cruise missile. OK, so we're probably in the in the foothills of, yes, we're going to give you the missiles, the same as everything else. But on the face of it, just that statement alone... Bearing in mind, if you remember the pressure placed on Germany and the mild criticism from uh, various podcasts that you may listen to, I mean, the spokesman saying Germany is focusing on heavy artillery, armoured vehicles and air defence systems. Well, that's, that's pretty good compared to where they were 18 months ago offering 5,000 helmets. But hey, I think we will see Taurus missiles soon. Anyway, enough for me. I'm now going to welcome our guests, Rob, Rob Hicken in Singapore and Dr. Gog in Brisbane. From GP Now, as I say, an online service offering free access to volunteer medical professionals for anyone in need of assistance as a result of the war. Rob, first, if I may, welcome back to the pod. Can I ask you please to update us first on the purpose, methodology and technology of GP Now and and ask how your model is working? Good, I guess, evening. Good evening, Singapore. Good evening, Dom. Thank you so much for... um providing us the opportunity to come back and um, share our story story with the um, team telegraph and uh, and your audience um it's been a colorful two months since uh, we we presented to you on the 14th of june so much has happened for those who didn't hear the podcast the first time around we launched um, 
uh, what we call the Ukrainian Crisis Care Telehealth Service. It's a not-for-profit initiative. And we've built, in fact, Don dubbed it the um, the hospital in the cloud. We have 75 Ukrainian medical professionals, 13 in, in Ukraine, including some in occupied territory, and the rest are spread across Europe, mainly mothers with children certified but unable to practice in the countries they're located in. We launched the service last March and backed by Amazon Web Services. And it, it's been a really, really encouraging two months, Don. The, the feedback from your audience has been extraordinary. We've helped now 8,659 families. Um, I'm looking at the numbers. Average duration is 18 minutes and 51 seconds for everyone, every one of the free consultations we've provided. And we've gone over 14,000 to 14,192 free sessions and 2,365 free hours. But what's most important is we were funded by Amazon up until the end of 2022. And uh, we pay our doctors. It's only a peppercorn amount of 10 euros per day to be online and then 10 euros per session. But it's, it's enough to keep the wolf from the door. But we've been in steady decline because we haven't had any funding. And thanks to um, the audience, we raised almost 10,000 euros as a consequence of the, um, the, um, the podcast. And we have been able to clear our backlog for January and February. And it was both humbling um, that the doctors were so grateful for um, being able to, uh, to get some recompense for, their, for the number of hours. The, so thank you, Team Telegraph, and thank you, your audience, for supporting us. We have turned the corner. July is the first month after six months of steady decline that we're actually back on the increase. So God bless you. Lovely. Thanks, Rob. Dr. Dog now, if I may, in Brisbane. Welcome. Quite dashing, dashing around the world today. Please tell me I got this correct. Former Surgeon General in Australia and earlier served two operational tours in Afghanistan. Now, with that experience, how effective would you say your service has been, first of all, for those, for those seeking help? And then we'll move on, move on from there. So just for your listeners, my background, I was a medical officer with a special air service regiment in Australia. Back into running hospitals, I've been exposed to mass casualty environments in Afghanistan, as well as bushfires in Australia and Category 5 cyclones up in central Queensland. So... Watching all of that overlaid into Ukraine, I've then gone into senior government as the chief medical officer for the Department of Home Affairs, and as you say, the Surgeon General for the Australian Border Force. So I've watched war on the front line. I've watched soldiers being injured, but overwhelmingly, I see the impact on the civilian population. And this becomes unquantified amount of medical care that's required. So your question goes to the types of medical consultations. We can reach out to people when there would be no service at all. I think the linkages with the internet and then utilising the platform allows us to provide a very safe, secure environment to do communications. And we do really have Amazon Web Services to thank for that. To be able to also provide not only just medical care, there's been a need for psychological care. There's been a need for veterinary care, believe it or not. And many of us who've got pets and animals know that 
these are the things that touch our humanity and keep us going. So to answer your question, I think we've created something that's very secure. Having had experience, we know that there's a population that is suffering greatly from the conflict, not only just the soldiers, but the um, Ukrainian population. And we know that there is a demand that we need to provide this care. We we, co- you know, we coined, and you touched on it last time, having a hospital in the cloud. This allows us to not only just provide primary care, but be able to provide secondary care in the form of specialties based within hospitals to BI, provide opinions and recommendations for treatment. And even for Ukrainian refugees, the diaspora spread throughout Europe. We're able to use a Ukrainian doctor to speak in their mother tongue to help guide them through and navigate what kind of investigations, diagnostic imaging that should be taken to be able to elucidate illnesses and then go into treatments. And we've got some very powerful case studies to to give examples to that. And as Robert's highlighted, this is all done on a shoestring by incredible people. I think you can tell by the passion in Robert's voice. That was one of the things that convinced sort of quite a stoic, quiet, reserved doctor like myself to actually throw my reputation and my time behind such a, a meaningful service. Thanks, Gog. So, I mean, if you're able to talk us through some of the case studies to bring it to life, we would appreciate that. But just generally, what kind of issues are folk bringing to you? And, and how close can an online service get to replicating the, the face-to-face interaction with patients? Do we call patients people making inquiries? What, what's the correct term? Yeah, look, I, I think it's probably consulting if I'm going to be, you know, a doctor. And um, the being able to put hands on people, obviously, is the gold standard. The human touch is so important. But what you create by producing a telehealth platform, as we mentioned we're providing remote medical consultations when medical professionals ordinarily may not be available. So this is a complementary, if not you know, a substitute for some people. We've got medical personnel that can consult when they're not at harm's way. So they're in a relatively reduced risk environment, but able to still practice their craft. There's also examples, and, and not in our service, but other services where telemedicine has been involved in teaching tactical combat care so that battlefield injuries can be managed very effectively. So there's a reach to the battlefield. I've already touched upon the specialist consultations where war zones will lack specialised medical professionals. I know that some of the systems are working very well throughout the country, but that's not to denigrate any of that activity. It's just to be able to provide the add-on We've also been able to do medical education and training. And only recently we've spoken to an organization called Health Tech Without Borders. And and if we can collaborate with as many organizations, this will give a lasting uh, reach to the population. Other elements, such as continuity of care, for example, to be able to speak to the same doctor and see the same face, it's the second best thing. We all love talking to our loved ones on video phones. I know that this is a moral hijinks environment, but to be able to see the face of your, of the person you're consulting, to be able to see 
the the human features, the mannerisms. People can tell whether there's empathy uh, within that consulting professional. To be able to reach out the psychological supports, there's been some absolutely shocking cases of sexual violence, and Robert will touch on some of those cases. Also, the other thing the platform gives is efficient resource allocation. When you know that some of the existential crisis has to be supported first, this is no way being paternal in any way. We want to supplement what Ukraine has, and we want to be able to clearly demonstrate. We, we collect data on the consultation at frequency. We collect data on the consultation activity. Uh, we collect data on making sure the doctors are properly credentialed. They are registered in Ukraine. They have an indemnity certificate. We don't collect data on confidential medical consultations. And, you know, we're not in the game of selling people's data for monetary gains. You know, we rely purely on donations to be able to keep this service up and running. And what what other things can occur on this platform are international collaborations. Up to four people can dial into a consultation, for example. So you can bring in specialist advice. And Rob can, again, talk about a, a dermatology consultation. This all comes down to distilling a reduction on the strain on the current health service. So it's complementary. It reduces the burden. We have a chief medical officer based within Ukraine so that it navigates and balances it, the priorities that are required. And it, it just makes sense, having been exposed to multiple mass casualty disaster environments, it just becomes a force multiplier. Thanks. Thanks, Gog. Uh, Rob, turning back to you, if I may, do you have any formal links to the Ukrainian State Health Service? I just think in terms of how you operate, does it matter that you're a transnational organisation? Are there any kind of overarching ethical guidelines or, or, or rules that you have to adhere to that, that is either helped or hindered by you being a, a transnational online service? Great question. Thank you for asking it. We have, so from the technical perspective, when we designed the framework, the architecture for the platform, it was always designed as an into-country service. So doctors are registered on the platform or the country in which they're licensed to practice, and, and, and then we can beam them in from anywhere in the world. So we have, um, we've designed it that way, and it allows us to be a very rapid response service. So, we, for example, Gold touched on our conversation with our friends at Health Tech Without Borders in the US who are essentially doing the same thing, approaching helping Ukraine from the other side of the world. And Dr. Jerome, um, who we spoke with, Jerome Lee, was about to jump on a plane to fly to Hawaii. And we said to him, we could have the platform up and running with doctors ready to beam in to provide second and third line support or the boots on the ground by the time your plane landed in Maui. So, but back to Ukraine, my friend, we are blessed to be backed by Amazon Web Services. And I know we have the fog of war and everyone's very, very busy. We have been presented to President Zelensky's office under the AWS Project Sunflower last year. And we have been trying to kick down the door of United 24 because we believe this program absolutely sits squarely 
under the middle pillar of, um, I think, United24 up about $428 million in donations. The first pillar is obviously for military aid to win the war, but the middle one is humanitarian and um, and uh, medical aid where we squarely sit, as does Health Tech Without Borders, for example. But we speak, and we've been unable to, even though the facilitator, Yaroslav Agres, for example, is she's very, very busy raising money around the world, and but she's actually a patient, her and her husband of Dr. Ilyashenko, our CMO. So we would love to be engaged with Mr. Liashko, Mr. Fedorov, Mr. Terenchuk, anyone at the Ministry of Health in Ukraine, and because we need help to help Ukraine, and it would be fantastic if that could happen. But uh, meanwhile, we'll soldier on, and there's much, much more that we can do. I mean, Dr. Gogner has highlighted some of the the, the activities that we've. There's uh, more that we've got lined up. But number one is to try and crank up the level of service levels from 1,000 families a month to maybe 10,000 before before winter sets in and the longer nights and the cold and so forth. So that's our our medium term goal. But what came out of the first call? Don was very powerful. We've had amazing people like Spencer Cash, a senior emergency response strategist, a veteran of six wars around the world, starting in Bosnia, say to us, he has never seen a service like this that fits into a new space between traditional service providers on the ground. And and, and, and that, that's something as well that Dr. Jerome at Health Tech Without Borders echoed. So we're trying to weave our way into uh, a very innovative would be, I guess, one way of looking at of approaching these common common sense solutions to very real world problems. So yeah, lots of good things happening, lots of good people popping up. We've uh, been approached by the, 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 the CU Relief Fund in, in the US to see if they can help us. University of Exeter reached out and very encouraging. And I really believe that thanks to that that single podcast, we have now turned the corner and we're, we're, we're just collaborating with so many people around the world. It's, it's kind of like the, the bottle is about to pop. I think we're going to be able to do a lot, lot more as we move forward. But, but Don, one of the most powerful things, the biggest message we got, and it actually reduced me to tears, was one of your audience put a comment in and he said it's infinitely more difficult to save a life than take a life and my team know this when we uh, we updated you on the last call about Anastasia the young girl with chondral cordoma sadly the cancer has come back it doesn't look too serious she's going in for more treatment at Leiden Medical University this month but um, we we it is not easy we also have a young guy who was with the Vladimir um, regiment he's discharged soldier with a terrible leg injury uh, and we know he's he's. Um, we're trying desperately to get hold of him. Uh, he was with the Da Vinci Wolves, and if he's known as Pan Shamil. If anyone knows of him, the team are very worried about him. We're trying to get hold of him um, to see if we can help him. Um, and there's just um, lots lo- lots more to do. Sorry, I'm rambling. But forgive me. No, that's that's great. Thanks. I, I was just going to wonder. I mean, it sounds as if this might be a model for healthcare much more broadly i mean outside of a combat area you, you mentioned one of your one of your colleagues is in maui i guess that's in response to the um, the horrific fires over there in, in hawaii but i mean this does sound like a an enduring 
and effective model. And yet it's it the single point of failure might be uh, I mean, nothing is Amazon Web Services, but the the kind of back the digital backbone to it. So do you think this going going forward, horrible clunky expression, but do you think this needs some kind of state apparatus to to keep it going? Or is would that actually would that just just put the blooming brakes on? Yeah, we've never I mean, that's part of it. We've never been motivated by money. Um, so we're purely fo- genuinely focused on patient-centric um, models. So, And that's why we were always struggling for funding and resources. And um, we have, um, and make no apologies for that, um, but I think uh, moving forward, um, this will, will morph into... And I know Dr. Um, Professor Terenchuk is looking at the telehealth strategy right now for Ukraine, and, and we're, we're trying to help him with that. Uh, but it's really common sense. Uh, if you've got the technology, and it, it took us a long time to get the technology right, um, then you can beam in doctors safely and securely from remote regions anywhere around the world quickly. Then why wouldn't you use that to complement um, and ease some of the pressure at point of care? Um, it's it's actually common sense in many ways. Do you find though? Maybe this is a question for um, for Gog. I mean, do you find that there's a limit, a natural limit, because of the technology that at some at some point you might feel that to go forward to continue would be doing poss- potentially more harm, and you actually have to step back from a from a patient inquiry, or or is the tech able to, as you say, having that human face, the empathy, it's actually able to get over some of those um, some of those trickier conversations. It's absolutely able to go over those trickier conversations, and, and it can be complementary to traditional models of care. Ukraine's in the middle of the conflict at the moment. I, I pray it comes out successfully, and it happens in a very short time frame. But then the reconstruction then occurs, and having seen friends and colleagues who've been to war, uh, the the legacy will be enduring. It will go for decades, and the demons come back, the physical injuries, the muscular damage, the bone damage, that will be ongoing. So there is a ongoing need for such a platform. Going back to your point regarding sovereign capability and disaster preparedness, and yeah, I touched on being involved with cyclones, with large bushfires, and also mass casualties in Afghanistan, and also through uh, boats arriving in Australia. It, it's actually staggering when communications are lost and that that contact with the outside world is lost to be able to link in with satellites to be able to be a multiplier not only will um osmat teams and, and i should explain the osmat teams that provide humanitarian assistance from australia into other countries such as the pakistan earthquake the tsunami in bandar Arche. And, and other responses that Australia's provided, um, this becomes not only a team that can only spread a certain geographical distance, but can then utilise people with language skills at a distance. It can complement the abilities to do the physical care on the ground. Um, so can it work effectively? Absolutely. And you talked about um, can it be supported through government? It's something that we've not pushed yet, but we're 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 coiling up to talk to USAID, and we're coiling up to talk to DFAT, which is our uh, foreign affairs ministry within Australia, and 
you know, these are just really important things. And then talking to the different elements throughout Australia to look at this as a sovereign capability. And you talked about the scalability. And I'm sure Rob will correct me if I'm wrong, but you know we can do concurrently up to half a million consultations per month. So it, it's a platform that has just been absolutely ruggedized with Amazon Web Services from the initial tech that was put into it. Um, but by all means, quiz Rob on that because he's the tech head. I'm going to start drawing it to a conclusion now. I'd like to uh, to invite both of you just to for your, for your final thoughts. But if, as part of that, I'd be really interested because we don't we don't often hear from people direct from Singapore and um, and on the ground in in Australia. I'd be really keen to hear what the view of this war is from your respective locations, how it's being reported and and how the news is being received in in Singapore and Australia. But yes, if you wouldn't mind wrapping that up into your into your final thoughts, I'd be really uh, really really keen to hear. So, Rob, first, please. Yeah, um, it's certainly not quite the same level of um, in in Asia, from what I can see. The level of passion and support for Ukraine is um, it's more neutral, and and that might be a consequence of being so close to China and um, and and the cultural differences between East and West. Um, I, I don't think I think there's a lot of sympathy. Um, you know, and a lot of people just can't believe that. These horrific things are going on, but the, the main comment is Ukraine isn't the only war, war going on in the world. So um, why is it getting so much attention? And uh, so it's a slightly different um, element there. Yeah. And in terms of uh, final thoughts, um, just uh, a thank you um, to, to the um, to, to 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 the Telegraph and the Ukraine. The latest listeners, um, uh, yeah, we we didn't really know what we were doing on the last call. So many people wanted to help, and we didn't have the tools in place to be able to do that. We didn't, we couldn't accept United States dollars, different currencies, recurring payments, and so we were told that we there was there was a groundswell of people who wanted to get behind us, and they just simply couldn't. Um, so we have worked very hard. Um, and uh, there's really a call to action is please look at the notes in the uh, at the end of the podcast. You, there's one option to fund us. There's an option to join us, which is to join our Ukrainian crisis care support team on the thing called um, teaming.net and follow us on Twitter and on our GP Now telehealth channel. And, um, and then email us if you're a corporate or, or someone who wants to sponsor the program. Um, um, but we're here, um, and um, the more support we can get, the more collaboration, teamwork makes the green work. Um, and, uh, yeah, we um, look forward to um, being able to give you some more good news. But we've turned the corner. Thank you all. God bless. Slava Ukraine. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. And we will put your links into the uh, into the episode notes. Gogs, we'd like the, uh, uh, the, fi- the last, last word, please. For me, who's been a soldier and watched reporting on television of war, you know, I just worry that a level of fatigue or normalization of seeing bad news. Yeah, I I was born and brought up in England, and, you know, I'd see with the Northern Ireland conflict when soldiers were reported as injured or killed in Northern Ireland, it it just became a routine news item. and, And, People just don't see the gravity of what one death means. 
Um, you know, I see the ambassador in Australia from Ukraine absolutely complimentary uh, to the Australian government. The Bushmasters are an incredible transport vehicle, um, got great blast technology. So, so there's an element of gratitude. I, I worry about the fatigue creeping in and the international will that continues to be able to support. Um, and so, you know, in concluding, um, like all of this, I want it to work out to be fair and equitable for the people of Ukraine. Um, I just hope it happens as soon as possible because the scars are already going to take a long time to heal. Thank you. Thank you to your listeners. And remember, for all the keen beans out there, our Serhii Plocky interview is available for early access to Telegraph subscribers by clicking the link below. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. The executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.